Talk Soups and CEOs, Season 2, Episode 20, The Five Minutes of Fame with IEI Superintendents. Come take a listen to what's been going on in their districts. Welcome back to Talk Soups and CEOs. Glad you're here. This is another recording from our IEI Spring Superintendent Institute at the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs out in Colorado. I'm not going to say much in terms of preamble. I think this was an incredible session. Everybody was riveted to it and listening to our superintendent members participate in an activity we called Five Minutes of Fame. It was sponsored by our friends at Audio Enhancement. Uh, You'll hear Kevin Mitchell from Audio Enhancement and his colleague Spencer Anderson speak at the very end to thank everybody. They sponsored this particular session. And really, all we did was just turn the floor over to our group. Our Our keynote address was our members talking to each other and just sharing the great work they've done this year. And I also want to help folks understand who haven't been to our events, you know, at some of these events, you've got people who haven't been to anything all year. Uh, we have others who've come to everything we've, or most everything we've done this year in this strange year where we've had smaller events and smaller venues and regional stuff. So, you know, for some people, this is their first time out sharing what they're working on. And you start to listen to some of these stories, and there are there are common threads, but, um, you know, for some of them, this is the first time they've been able to get together with colleagues and hear what everybody's working on, aside from zoom calls and twitter and and all of that so there's some passion in here it's a really just fantastic group of superintendents i was really happy that they all agreed to step up and be part of the five minutes of fame so and they all pretty much stuck to the five minutes so in order you know keep please keep in mind this was a live event that we recorded on remo and our conference software so some of the transitions between people are not ideal so just please be aware of that. But I'll give you the, the order of the speakers here. Um, for the most part, they do introduce themselves. Dr. Dwight Jones, Superintendent of Denver Public Schools. Mr. Ken Dyer, Superintendent of Doherty County Schools in Georgia, which is or Albany, Georgia, which was an early epicenter of the pandemic. Uh, Mr. Todd Dugan, Superintendent of Bunker Hill Community School District in Illinois. Dr. Shannon Downs, Superintendent of Gilmer County Schools in Georgia, Mr. Tim Mitchell, Superintendent of Riverside Community School District in Iowa, Mr. Mike Daria, first time with us, really happy to have him, Superintendent of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Mr. Tom Burton, Superintendent of Princeton, Ohio Public Schools, and the last superintendent who does, I know he does not say his name in the thing, and it's an abrupt transition between uh, me saying I could listen to you guys speak all day, and then all of a sudden Dan's talking is... uh, Mr. Dan Cox, Superintendent of Rochester, Illinois. So, hope you enjoy the five minutes of fame stories from all of our members. And I think it uh, it speaks it speaks for itself. And it, I'm just very honored that these people uh, spend their time with us and have agreed to be part of our group. It's just really I'm, I'm a very I consider I consider us very lucky to have these folks, and I'm a very lucky person. I get to spend time with these these incredible educational leaders. Enjoy. Uh, home team usually bats last. This time, the home team's going to go first. Dr. Dwight Jones, who lives like 20 minutes from here in the Springs, Superintendent, Denver Public Schools. Thank you very much, Doug. First of all, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to Colorado. Uh, we're really happy to have you here. I hope you're enjoying the Broadmoor. It's a beautiful facility, and Colorado Springs is a beautiful city. It's a city uh, my wife and my family and I get to call home, so we're excited to be here. I am the interim superintendent of Denver Public Schools. And so I make that drive pretty much every day back and forth to Denver. Um, Before taking over as the interim superintendent, I was working as the senior deputy superintendent of equity and engagement. For some of you that don't know me, I've had uh, great opportunities in education and really glad to be with all of you. And I know many of you that are here in this room. So again, welcome to Colorado. 
I just wanted to share a little bit um, when we think about the pandemic, really to just kind of give some shout outs to some folks that have just really had a positive impact on our staff, on our students, and certainly on the Denver Metro community. I like to kickstart by just uh, thanking the governor who moved educators up really early to be vaccinated in Colorado. I know that made a huge difference for us being able to get students back in person and to do that in the safest way possible. And so to uh, the governor here in Colorado, we really appreciate that he made an effort to say educators matter. And if there's gonna be a push to be back in person, it was important to get educators vaccinated. Second, I wanna really give a shout out to all of our unions, our teacher union, our unions that for transportation, for food service, for custodial services, the way our unions partnered with us and stepped up has just been phenomenal. And I know that's not the case everywhere. And so recognizing the importance of all of the folks that help make schools work. And then finally, certainly to our teachers and leaders. We've been back in person since January been tough. You know, uh, there's been positivity rates up and down. As you know, Colorado is up a little bit right now coming out of spring break. And so we've had to stay the course. And, you know, what's really helped is having the educators vaccinated has made it feel a lot safer. If you have been watching the local news, I hope you're able to see last night a story on Denver Public Schools where we have started a concentrated effort to get our students vaccinated. And so we ran two clinics yesterday and we're running a clinic again today where we're vaccinating 600 to 800 students. And the students stepping up also is gonna make a big difference. Right now it's 16 year olds and up, but we also have gotten clearance for 12 year olds and up. And so we're taking the initiative ourselves to get our students vaccinated, working with our partners at Denver Health, uh, Children's Hospital, our hospitals have really stepped up to really help us get that done. So. Welcome again to Colorado. Thank you for all that you do. I know that it's been a tough year. I guess I would just close by saying we are really trying to think about, you know, our president right now has said we got to figure out how we build back better. And we've kind of taken that same theme here in Denver and saying we just can't go back to business as usual as we start to come out of the pandemic. So we're really planning and working with a lot of our partners about what does build back better mean for Denver Public Schools? Part of that means now every child has a laptop computer. So what can we do instructionally? How can we engage students in a different way? Part of that means that we can have some of our central office employees that can work more from home because we learned a lot about being able to do things remotely and in some cases do them better. And so we're pretty excited about the possibilities. We're hopeful for going back to some kind of normalcy in August. And I know all of you are hoping for the same thing. Thank you so much. Good afternoon, everyone. As Doug said, I'm uh, Ken Dyer with the Dorota County School System in Albany, Georgia. We have 14,000 students, uh, 22 schools. And what some of you may not know is that uh, we were one of the first hotspots for COVID-19 in the country. Uh, in April of 2020, a year ago, we were number one in the, in the country per capita in terms of cases. In fact, we're number three in the world. You had Wuhan, China, number one, the Lombardi region in Italy, number two, and Albany, Doherty County, Georgia, number three. And again, this was, this was a year ago. And uh, we didn't have the benefit of other communities going before us telling us how they did it. So we were building the plane as we flew. And it was scary. <laughs> uh, hospital was overrun. The mall was overrun. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of fear. But you know, we, had to, we had to make do. And we had to move forward, and we did. We're a community that had dealt with adversity in the past. Uh, two tornadoes in January 2017 that came a week apart. Uh, Hurricane Michael in 2019 uh, that devastated our community. Uh, but those things came and went relatively quickly. And when they were over, we could see where the damage was. We didn't know what to avoid or what areas to concentrate in. As you know, with this, we didn't have that luxury. Uh, it was invisible. We only knew it was there when people got sick. And we didn't know how to avoid it, didn't know a lot about it. So uh, we moved forward, uh, and then spring we pivoted to uh, online learning, uh, remote learning. And fortunately, we were a one-to-one -one district about three or four years ago. Uh, so all of our students had access to a device. What we learned quickly was that not all of our students had access to a reliable internet at home. Uh, we could only get our hands on about 
uh, 1,000 hotspots that we distribute first to our seniors and our dual enrollment students because we consider those priorities to get the graduation requirements out of the way and to get those college courses done. But during the summer, uh, we met with uh, other school systems. I, I think uh, Ann LeVette's here from Savannah Chapel. We met with her, uh, Bill County School System, Cleveland <laughs> County School System. And we used uh, cross-functional teams from each district uh, to get together to come up with ideas to address this challenge that we have. And uh, we did that, and we developed individual plans based on that. And our plan was based on a responsible restart uh, with transparency, equity, and uh, science at the core of our response. And uh, what we did, we put a plan together, and we identified what the metrics were and determined when we would pivot away from in-person learning, when we would uh, go in for in-person learning, and we let our parents know where they were before school started. So as the, the cases went up and down, they knew what to expect. Uh, we only delayed twice, once at the beginning of school for about a month, and once in January after the Christmas break, uh, holiday break, when cases spiked. Uh, but other than that, we had no pushback from our parents because we were transparent in the beginning and let them know what we were going to do. In terms of equity, uh, we invested in about 7,000 hotspots because over half of our students didn't have access to reliable internet. And we knew that a portion of our learning was going to be online for all of our students. And all of our learning is going to be online for some of our students because we provided choice to our families. So we provided uh, 7,000 hotspots. Every student had access to internet at home and a device uh, for instruction. We also provided meals and things that all of the school system did. We had our bus routes run, run meals uh, throughout the community because we had a transportation issue and our students couldn't get to school to get the meals. So we provided our bus routes uh, to let them get the meals that way. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna fast forward, Doug, I know I have five minutes. and you know I'm, I'm from South Georgia. Yeah, one, that's two minutes, right? There two minutes left, I got it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, uh, but what we did, uh, we, we did a lot of things like that, but two things I wanna, I wanna focus on. Uh, one is what I wish we would have done. One thing I wish we would have done was prior to the pandemic, we partnered with, uh, you saw I shook Kevin's hand when we came up, uh, we partnered with uh, Audio Enhancement to, to put his equipment in three of our buildings. And those buildings during the pandemic, they were able to uh, live stream teachers teaching from their boards in a more natural environment versus being stuck behind a laptop. We didn't have that at other schools. Two of our school systems in, in Georgia did it through the entire system. They were able to do that with all their schools. And I was jealous. We go, never going to do that because we're never going to get caught with our path down again, uh, not ready. So we're going to be ready next time. We're going to have them at all our schools beginning uh, this year. The other thing I'm most proud of, the thing I think we did well, is our students. And they're stepping up to the plate, not from an academic standpoint or from a social and emotional standpoint for themselves. We met their needs. But we have a food desert in Albany. One of our grocery stores, the only grocery store on the south side of town, uh, closed during the pandemic created the food desert. And, and our college and career academy, which is a high school academy, they have a garden. And our business students, our logistics students, and our agribusiness students got together to determine a, a distribution plan so they could take, they could harvest the food from our garden and take it to those different points in the city that didn't have access to fresh produce. And that made me most proud because our students saw that as an opportunity to serve well as even in the midst of them struggling. So I think uh, it's more than just about uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic. They see themselves as community trustees. And we've been focusing on serving leadership uh, for the last four years. Because I was proud as a superintendent to see that our students saw that as an opportunity. What I was proud of them saw that as an opportunity to serve others despite the challenges they were facing themselves. So that's all I got to say, Doug. And that's it. I think I took my two minutes. And uh, <laughs> Kevin, you'll, you'll, you'll give me the, you'll get two of my minutes to, hit, to, to me. <laughs> Thanks, I see you. Okay, uh, Todd Dugan from Bunker Hill, Illinois. Hi, everybody. Uh, Todd Dugan, superintendent of Bunker Hill School District number eight in Bunker Hill, Illinois. Um, when you think of Illinois, you probably think more along the lines of Chicago land uh, and suburbs. However, our district uh, prior to the pandemic was uh, about 40% of the way through a digital conversion. In fact, we are a pre-K through eight district that is located in uh, South Central Illinois. We're spread out over 80 some uh, square miles. Our district is considered uh, rural, remote. We are in a federal medically deprived area with 18% of our families that lack uh, broadband access. And some of this is not only affordability, but it is accessibility. Providers uh, will not tunnel miles and miles of lit fiber for six paying, paying customers. So 
Uh, we had some uh, structural challenges in place even prior to the pandemic. Uh, so basically what, um, what our district encountered and throughout the pandemic and even uh, would like to think uh, emerging from the pandemic, if we truly are there yet, was that uh, access and the technology was only a tiny, tiny piece of the problem. So uh, when you look at the, the devices, you can, you know, you can quickly order devices, you can quickly deploy them. Uh, as far as connectivity, you can do the, uh, you know, the quick answer of the cellular hotspots. However, uh, we were saddened to see uh, many of our neighbors that would either deploy hotspots or throw up a drive up mobile Wi-Fi public spot and then say they've uh, they've closed the uh, digital divide. And we found that was absolutely not the case. In fact, the digital divide in South Central Illinois is more like a digital chasm instead of a digital divide, uh, because in, and in these cases, too, when technology has been lacking in some of these uh, underdeveloped areas of Illinois, um, the pedagogy is nowhere near where it needs to be. So you can have the infrastructure, you can have the devices, you can have the uh, connectivity. However, if the pedagogy hasn't changed, uh, basically what you've done is you've given, uh, in my opinion, what, and what we have found is that you have now connected the district and made a, uh, a district that is one-to-one -one with internet access with as inequitable as before. Um, and so some of the some of the struggles and the encounter and the, the successes that we've encountered include uh, uh, we basically we had a focus of three areas. Uh, so after we got the devices and the connectivity, we focused on three areas, which was engagement, uh, well-being and uh, engagement, well-being and feedback. So uh, and depending on the different parts of the pandemic, we shifted those focuses around. So obviously at the top was always well-being. However, in various uh, various points throughout the, the past school year, we had uh, basically uh, areas where we were fully in remote and then back to hybrid and then fully remote again and then uh, fully in person. So we've been at uh, a variety of these areas. And what we have found throughout the time is that by focusing on those three things, as opposed to um, rather just the devices and the connectivity uh, was what led to the digital equity. Um, emerging from the pandemic, some of the lessons learned is that uh, uh, I think what our biggest uh, takeaway with the families has been is that there are massively huge areas of inequity that have existed prior to the pandemic. And I think the pandemic has shined a spotlight on them. And so I will hit two of those and then uh, and then uh, leave from here. So number one was the fact of the digital equity, the access that was there. We've been saying this for 10, 15 years. Uh, those of us in the trenches have said this was an issue. The pandemic didn't, shine, didn't show us anything new. However, it hit it like a glaring spotlight. And, and number two was um, these uh, learning loss and you know, the whole national and regional and state conversations around learning loss uh, is definitely very relevant. There was all these studies coming out uh, from NAEP and, and uh, MAP and WEA that have showed how much ground has been lost. However, uh, we've seen that parents can get very, very concerned about learning loss. And even if we're talking one to three months learning loss. However, each summer, and we've in our school community, we've kind of pointed this out. Each summer, when we take these 10, 12 weeks off nonstop, we have always been okay with coming back in August, accepting the fact that there was at least one month of learning loss every year. So um, the bottom line is that when the, some of the positives from the pandemic is that these inequities, uh, and those are just a few of them, these inequities, especially in rural areas with, uh, without broadband, they have been uh, hit with a spotlight and now it becomes, uh, you know, uh, the conversation begins to move for the future. For the future is how that we can in innovate and change for the better by eliminating some of these uh, obstacles that we've known have been there for years, years, and in some cases, decades. Shannon uh, is the superintendent of Gilmer County Schools. There's something in her school district name about charter, but she's not from a charter school. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> a what charter. Yeah. So I'm Shanna Downs from Gilmer County Schools in North Georgia. And while many of the challenges that were spoken about previously we faced, um, we had some other unique challenges as well. So I'm just going to kind of add on to um, the last two superintendents. Like the people who have spoken before, um, we have uh, a very high percentage of, of impoverished students in our area. Um, it's in the mountains um, of kind of Appalachia. 
And we have many students that do not have access to internet at home. And so the answer for many districts was to get hotspots and give them out. The problem is many of our students, you can give them a hotspot, but there's no cellular network for it to operate off of. And so when we closed back in March, we immediately began running our uh, food distribution five days a week around every bus route. We went to the students' driveways to hand out food. And so I rode the buses and our central office staff rode the buses to hand out the food. And one day um, I tried to switch routes. We run 53 routes every day and um, I would go on different ones. And so I saw many, many um, examples of just terrible, terrible poverty. And this one day I am on this bus and we're on a dirt road that you can't even imagine a bus going up because it's, it's narrow. My cell phone, no service. No one on the bus had, had cell service and we were driving maybe 15, 20 minutes up this, up the side of this mountain that, you know, you could never turn a bus around, it drops off the side. Um, just, you know, you are really going back in the woods. 15 minutes in, we pull up to what looked like an old rundown, I would call it like a chicken coop. And this child runs out and he said, we're getting a well today. We're going to have water to the bus driver. And um, he gave him the food and, you know, we smiled, said hello, we left. And going back down that mountain, another 15 minutes of no, no cell service. They did not have a car that would run. He lived with his grandmother on the top of this mountain. They were obviously just getting water and there's no cell service. And so that made me really think about that we had several kids in that type of situation that no matter what device I send home, no matter what hotspot we give to them, none of that's going to work. The only thing that would work for those students is to figure out a way to have them back in school. Because once the end of the school year happened, we had to go to food distribution sites, not running the buses anymore. And I thought that child's not going to be able to get to a site to get one of our public hotspots that our our local telephone company had helped us get, and he's not going to be able to get to the food site to get the food delivered. So we made an effort right then to start figuring out how to bring our students back who needed to come back face-to-face -face and wanted to come back face-to-face -face as soon as school could possibly start at the beginning of August. And so that was truly our effort was to try to get as many people back face-to-face -face as possible. Um, and so we left it up to the parents. Anyone who wanted to go virtual could go virtual. We opened at the beginning of August. We opened all of our schools. We had 80% of our students chose face-to-face. 20% of our families chose to stay home. Um, here at the end of the year, we have about 8% that are still um, going virtually. But the vast majority of our students wanted to come face-to-face. -face. So then we started facing the staffing issues of quarantine. Because if we were going to provide those services, we couldn't have all of our staff quarantined. Um, so um, based on guidance from Homeland Security, my board agreed to declare all of our staff essential employees. And that was a lifesaver uh, for our school district. Uh, we didn't make anybody come to work. If they, if they were exposed and they did not feel comfortable coming in and an N95 having their temperature checked, uh, multiple times a day. They didn't have to. We would find a substitute, but we were able to stay open this entire year. We never closed a single school. We started on time and we're going to, you know, to end on time. So just kind of a more unique, I think we have to look at that every district is different. And part of our success was open communication and helping our community realize the need of students being back face-to-face -face during the pandemic. So. All right, Tim Mitchell from Riverside, Iowa. Come on up, Tim. I got my first superintendency when I was 35 years old. This fall, I turned 60. So most of my life, I've been a school superintendent. 
uh, for over 25 years. And I've ran three school districts in those 25 years. Two of them are very small rural school districts. And one of them was a very large urban school district. And I can tell you, you think with 25 years of experience, you would have the tools to navigate the last 16 months, but I did not. And so one of the things I've always tried to promote in myself is being a learner and my organization being a learner. And just recently, in one of my learning activities, I read a book by Adam Grant, Think Again. And if you've not read it, you should. And there's a quote in there where he talks about, it's easy to see the appeal of a confident leader who offers a clear vision, a strong plan, and a definite forecast for the future. But in times of crisis and maybe even in times of prosperity, we need more leaders who accept uncertainty, acknowledge mistakes, learn from others, rethink their plans. Sometimes organizations demand bold and persistent experimentation. A quote by then, the governor of New York, soon become a four-term president to lead us to the Great Depression, FDR. And so I think some of the leadership skills that we needed to navigate what was going on were there for us. But I think a lot of us got hired because we were the confident guy or gal with the plan. And that's what board members love to see, the person who has all the answers and is always right and who's leading the district down this path. But um, in Iowa, I don't know what I would have done if we had a choice. You know, we were told right away when we closed school in March, April, May to get three plans together, have an in-person, have a hybrid, and have a remote. And then the governor, the first week in August, got on to a news conference and out of the blue told us, you will go to school the first day in August, unless you get approval from my Department of Education to go remote. And so we started in June and July playing varsity sports because lo and behold, you got to have your varsity sports. So we played baseball and softball in July, uh, you know, fully whatever. But um, I think a couple things that I learned through this particular process, and we we're very fortunate, we only had two days right before Thanksgiving where we went full remote. Other than that, we went full face-to-face. -face. We've been in face-to-face, -face. and it's been difficult at times to do that, but I think November, December were the hardest parts. But um, we had two days right before Thanksgiving. But I think what I learned is to build trust, you have to widen your circle. We did a lot of surveys, but I know I was in a small district. There were four or five critical issues that everybody was really had a lot of fear about, masks and barriers and all those sorts of things. So I got on my phone. I did a four question, very quick survey. I called every single one of my staff members to get their opinions and how they felt emotionally about what we were gonna go through. And it was really helpful for me to put that together. And I know in big school districts, you can't always do it, but I took that opportunity to really widen my circle of influence. And then I got the board to pass a resolution that I was gonna be the one to make the decisions and make sure that they supported that. And so when I did a mask mandate, to start the school year. And to this day, I think it was one of the things that we did that really helped us get through some of the different things along with our social distancing and our, and our bubble methodologies. Other school superintendents said, how did you do that? They were getting kicked back from the public and getting kicked back from the board. And I said, you know, I'm not having a political conversation with anybody. My undergraduate degree was in biology. I actually studied microbiology. And when people came forward and started challenging it, I said, you know, from my experience, I have to make decisions on what is best for our children, and I'm going to mask everybody, and, and we're going to move through that. And so I think widen the circle, try to get, you know, and, and talk to people in that way. You have to be a rational optimist. I think that's really important. People want to know, what do you know? Communicate that. Communicate what you don't know. And the message always has to end with, there's hope. We're going to get through this. You know, they've got to see you as being authentic. You have to remove some of the barriers of being a personal versus a professional leader. And you got to make the tough calls without apologizing. And I think in, in times of crisis, I told my staff, we're going to foster innovation. Because I heard a lot of people talking about this last year is the year of cancel. I think the words we use are important. For us, we called it the year of change. And it's all about moving forward. And so we've tried to have all those different kinds of discussions about how we how we could how we, we could be better in the in, in the future. And so 
I think um, the last thing that was really important for us was, and we talked about this earlier, the collaboration of us as superintendents got to the highest level I've ever seen it. And, and, and we had to talk about our wellness. We had to keep all of us on the straight and narrow. We had to communicate to each other on a regular basis. And so, you know, we always talked a little bit about do what you can in this moment to move forward, to move your district forward. Stay focused on that. Don't lose sleep over what you can't control. I know that was easy to say and hard to do for many of us because many of us lost a lot of sleep as we went through this particular process, but I think that's really important. Do your best to keep everything in perspective and the perspective is always what? The health and safety of our students and our staff members. And when I defaulted to that with decisions that people were, 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 were trying to you know, challenge me, they didn't really have much of a challenge left. You know, They had to admit that you are trying to do what was best um, keep everything in perspective. As I said, you've got to be flexible and resist, uh, uh, resilient. And I was a sports official for 28 years. That was the best thing that got me to where I am today. And that is knowing that every time I blew my whistle, half the people in the room thought I was the craziest, dumbest <laughs> son of a gun they've ever met in their entire life. And the rest of them thought I just made the greatest decision ever. And all of us saw the same thing happen. So in a pandemic, that's exactly what happened. We had to be prepared for that kind of decision-making. Just make the decision. Don't apologize. And like I said, empower others. I started what I call a simple rule every day. Started to do it, try to do it every single day. And I do it every single day. I've been doing it all year long. I write personal notes of gratitude every single day. And I have had bus drivers, maintenance people, substitutes come forward and say, no one has ever written me a personal note of thank you. And getting a personal note of thank you takes me maybe the first five or 10 minutes of my day. And I think it has helped us get through to a point now where some of our, I was very surprised, some of our pulse inventories coming back on a regular basis about climate culture are being very positive. So don't forget those simple things. And so uh, those are some of the things that after 25 years of being a superintendent, I've learned through this pandemic and hopefully they're helpful for you also. Thank you so much, Devin. You know what? I'm going to thank all of you for, for sticking with it. Kids need you. It would be very easy, I think, if I were in your position, very easy to think about, well, maybe I'll try something else. Um, but, yeah, Tim, for 32 years, whatever that was, that's, that's great. So I appreciate it, Tim. Appreciate all of you. Mike Daria, new to IEI from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So glad you were willing to step up and do this. Thank you all for having me here. Uh, my name is uh, Mike Daria, Tuscaloosa City Schools in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. We're an 11,000 student district. Um, this is my fifth year, um, and I so appreciate the comments made uh, by our colleagues here before. Um, this has absolutely been a wild year, a tough year. Um, so our story in Tuscaloosa is this. Um, we are a, a town of champions. Uh, we've got a football team there that some of you may know about. They, they do really well. It's a, it's a thriving community. Um, and for the last five years, we've been working hard to keep, to keep that in our school system because for too long, our school system was really a high-performing school system for a good number of students, but not all students. And we really were making progress on that these last five years. We were calling out um, things that needed to be called out. We were putting resources where resources needed to go so that we could change outcomes for each and every student so that all students and the real meaning of all meaning all students can be highly successful in our school system. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Um, we had a community that was actually galvanizing around that. Uh, we had our business community. We, we still do. We have our business community working together for our students, asking how can we support K-12 education? So we had a lot of this synergy going on in Tuscaloosa. And the same with you all. Then this thing hit us. Um, and the biggest fear we had is how do we take that momentum that we were building as a school system and as a community um, with this notion of this collective impact for, for our students? How do we take that and then not get thrown back um, so many steps that we that we had just taken uh, moving forward? So for us, that was the big challenge. And like all the folks who talked before and everybody here we did all those things that you did as soon as the pandemic hit. We did hotspots for all. We did a rapid deployment of Chromebooks. Um, but what I'm most proud of is what, um, where we go from here. And I know some of you have talked about that already. Um, for us, 10 years ago, uh, a tornado came through Tuscaloosa, took out two of our schools, a lot of our homes, and just devastated our community. And we took the 
some of the strategies that we did post-tornado and applied it to this crisis. Um, both the immediate strategies of looking out for each and every student, not losing one student from our school and making sure each student was connected the day after the tornado, the day this crisis really hit us and, and moving forward. But then also that longer term, Tuscaloosa after the tornado took a position of let's not just rebuild, but let's rebuild better. And I think that's what we're doing in our school system is really looking now, how do we rebuild better, which has been the conversation here and certainly the, the idea of the comeback. Um, so some things I, we're all proud of in our community, and I think within education, is that connection that our teachers have with our students. Um, as soon as the pandemic hit, we made sure and every one of our teachers called and spoke to every student and just said, are you OK? How are you? And that was a that was a post-tornado strategy. We had people knocking on doors after the tornado to make sure our kiddos were OK. And we can we continue that kind of that check and connect um, in post, during this pandemic. The other thing we did is we took our instructional uh, tights that we put in place because in, across our, uh, our school system, we had different levels of instruction depending on the school and the classroom within a school. So we've worked really hard to make sure we've got a set definition of Tuscaloosa City School instructional tights. So one of the things we did early on in this pandemic is we took those tights and said, OK, how do these tights operate in this new this new world we're in now? And then we launched a, our professional development off of that. The other thing we did well and that we've got to carry forward is we, we've individualized that professional development for our teachers. So we still do a lot of large stuff because there's a lot of stuff that we all had to learn together. We changed it into a new learning management system so that we all had one system as opposed to multiple um, different products. So that took some large PD, but then we have teachers at different levels of, of need. And we were really good at saying, what do you need? And then how, how can we get that for you? So we're, we want to keep that going. Uh, but that has certainly been a bright spot for us. The other bright spot for us is, is like a lot of you, we've been operating as PLCs. And that infrastructure was already in place. So we, we defaulted to that in our work in responding to this pandemic is let's not lose those, those PLC um, tights that are important for us of collaboration and really working together to, to find uh, strategies to move forward. And we're going to keep that going. And I, I believe that's made us stronger. The other bright is our central support team, our central office. There's always that kind of that gap between your, our, our system leadership and our school-based leadership. And we have really worked hard to make sure that these, these two work in collaboration. And that has been a bright spot for our school system uh, going through uh, th this pandemic. And then the other bright spot is, and a lot of you've talked about that, is our communication. Um, we've got an incredible PR team in the Tuscaloosa City Schools, but even our PR team, along with our school-based folks, we had to rethink the way we communicate. Um, and we, we've done that in a lot of ways, and we don't want to lose those, those strategies of communication um, as we move forward and as we come out of this. And then my last bright spot that I think we've seen in our profession is in our community, and I think across our country, rightfully so, teacher voices being elevated. And I think our community is seeing the role of the teacher in a different way. And right now we're engaging in a lot of really good conversations in Tuscaloosa about the support for teachers, about what, how do we improve the profession? What do we need to take away from teachers so they don't have to do certain things? Um, what can we do to make sure our teachers stay in this profession and they're highly effective in this profession? Um, and I think for us, that's been a really great discussion. Um, We've battled all the battles you guys have battled in this. Um, we've had community split over all of our decisions. But what's been really neat is there's this strong support for our teachers. And we want to keep that going. And we want to keep that conversation in Tuscaloosa going about how do we support teachers? How do we make sure we're clear about what they need so that they can be highly effective? So, yes, it's been a crazy year. Um, but like you all, we, we see the comeback and we, we're really excited about caring for those things that are, are, are moving education forward. Thank you for having me. All right, in this group, we got like a ton of Clemson. Now we got an Alabama guy. This man is from a state that has a real college football program. Ohio <laughs> State Buckeyes. Tom from Princeton, Ohio. Hey. Oh, yeah, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Hey, I'm going to ask you three real quick questions. We're going to start. I'll tell you a little bit about Princeton in a second, but I want the very first thing you think about, I want you to remember. So I'm going to ask you three questions. Remember the very first thing you thought about. I want you to pick a color, pick a flower, and pick a piece of household furniture. You guys got it? Color, flower, piece of household furniture. Raise your hand if you chose red or blue. 
day. So just about everybody. Raise your hand if you chose, say, Rose or Tulip. Some more. What about couch or love seat? So what the pandemic has done, like this traditional thought, I didn't read your minds, I didn't do that, and I've done this all over the country. Historically, this is what we find. 90% of the people, 90%, I get two or three for sure right. Then one, right, it's like 5%. So 95% of the people I can predict for sure at least one answer. But what the pandemic has done is really caused us to think differently, right? Not traditionally. So this is what I, I took some notes when people were talking. What the pandemic has done, what COVID, it should not have taken COVID to show an appreciation for educators. And we know it's at all time high, actually. Why? Because the parents now have to be parents. And they haven't been parents for a long time. Let's just be honest. They pushed all that responsibility on teachers, on principals to teach their child. It should not have taken COVID. It should have taken COVID to actually teach us to really innovate differently. I mean, it's embarrassing to think about why like, it took COVID to get us to really differentiate the highest of all levels. And not that we haven't done great work, we have, but it really changed the playing field for sure. It should have taken COVID to actually have funding come our way the right way. And people talk all the time, what's gonna happen when the money runs out? Why does it have to run out? Because now finally you put an emphasis on closing the achievement gap, closing learning gaps, but most importantly, closing opportunity gaps. And we heard that loud and clear. Food insecurities, it permeated this country for a long time. And I just, like a couple call to actions. So we know like this summer, COVID may not exist like it did before. We hope it does, it goes away. But all the partnerships that you guys have all had, and we made a concerted effort at Princeton to make sure that we're not going to stop the collaboration with our food centers, the collaboration with our businesses that provided food, and we're going to do everything that we can. That's a call to action for all of us. Closing the digital divide, for sure. We know that that's happened. I'm very proud of Princeton say every single one of our students has connectivity, has a device, and wherewithal to do it. We're, we're trying to connect more with parents. That's really what our next thing is. So I love hearing some of the examples of parent universities and so forth. While we do have a learning series, we need to do more. But I'm going to spend the next two and a half minutes, or my last two and a half minutes, specifically on equity. As a white leader, I cannot believe that it took COVID that really focused on the racial and social injustice that we've seen that's permeated our country for centuries, but yet it did. And so what we have done at Princeton, we while we have had always had an equity team, man, we've been on the on the making sure that every single thing is not about belief, it's about behavior. I don't care what you believe, and I put it in the chat. I mean, I do care what you believe, but your behavior is much more important to me. So as a white leader, it was not okay to not make aggressive stances and actually put some uh, student voice and provide lots of opportunities for community to come together to talk about the atrocities which happened last spring, the atrocities that have happened forever in this country. As a white leader, it was not okay for me not to take an active stance on what happened with Asian Americans. And people in my community, and Princeton is typically routine, seen as like one of the most diverse school districts in the state of Ohio. But we have where the Tea Party started in Ohio, in our community. And so several people would call and say, why are you even talking about that? What does that have to do with Princeton? I said, it has everything to do with our country. We have to become more inclusive and stop being exclusive. I'm just gonna leave you with this. One of the best things that I did was get involved hiring loving educators, not only here, but some of my other friends that are also at uh, the League of Innovative Schools. Myself and Susan's I know involved and several other Marlon Stiles and several other superintendents had their kids come together. And we have a C Summit next, next Saturday a week from yesterday, C-Summit, it's about student voice, it's about justice, social justice, and it's providing authentic voice. It is professional development run by students for all of our educators. And so when you think about some of the things, when you talk about a bright spot, I don't know if we would have had, and we hope to well over a thousand people, and these kids are all over the country that collaborated. I don't know if that would have happened if we did not like kind of have our hand before us. 
but I hope that maybe there's one little nugget that you guys took, but I love learning and I certainly appreciate all the colleagues before me and the one that's following me so I can learn and grow as well. Thank you. This is great. I could listen to you guys talk. I could listen to you guys talk all day. That's really awesome. Just a brief history for me. I'm, I'm a first year superintendent in my current district. I've been a superintendent for 11 years. I'm at Rochester School District, which is a bedroom community outside of our capital city of Springfield. And that's a wonderful place. It's I call it La La Land. Really, it's, it's just a great place to be. And we've had prior to my arrival, we had five superintendents since their inception of that district. In over 80 years, they only had five superintendents. Over the last three years, there was a there was a situation that did not work out, which then caused two interims to come in. So we've now had going from five superintendents over 80 years. I'm the fourth superintendent in three years. So I wanted to talk about in the context of not just the pandemic, but in, in just as board superintendent relationships in general. But right now we're seeing difficult conversations happening um, in school districts between boards and superintendents. Boards and superintendents may be with different philosophies. And also, it's hard to find good board candidates to run for school boards. So that communication is even more important. And the most important job a school board can have is to hire their superintendent. That's their one employee. And when it breaks down, it's typically in communication. So when I came into Rochester, um, the board that hired me has already turned over by four um, in the first year. So that communication became even more important. And again, I have really good people that I'm working with and our board president is the Dean of High um, Education Administration at the University of Illinois Springfield. We redid the evaluation process where we took the Marzano's um, leadership that works and the McCrell study, and we combined that into benchmarks um, to, to redo our evaluation process. Within that evaluation process, I meet every 90 days with two different board members on our school board. The board president can always come if she so chooses. But within those 90-day conversations, we take a look at those benchmarks and see where they relate into our uh, school and district improvement plan, our strategic plan, my job description as a superintendent, and then also what we call the other stuff, you know, the beans, buses, and basketballs, right? The school board can't get out of talking about that. So we give them the opportunity to talk about it. But what I found is it's given me the opportunity to make sure every three months, I'm talking to two different board members in a really informal setting about here's what's going well in my job. Here's what's not going so well in my job from my perspective. And I get to hear it from their perspective and we get on the same page. The piece I really want to hit home on this, though, is the transparency that we have in the political capital we gain in the with the staff. After that meeting, the board, the two board members go back to the rest of the board at the next regular school board meeting. And we talk in closed session, but then we go out of closed session and do a high level report to the public, to our teachers about what they have learned within the superintendent evaluation process, which really provides some um, accountability for me as the leader. And it shows the public and our teachers that, hey, everybody's expected to learn, grow and improve. With that, we've also started a 360 evaluation. Um, that 360 evaluation, I work with a leadership coach, um, Bruce Miles out of Big River Group from Minnesota. And we, we send out, or I send out an email to staff asking them help to help me grow as a leader and to become better professionally and personally. And we have them send the responses directly to the coach so it can be ensured that it's anonymous. And it's just a four question survey. It's what two or three things has done Dan Dunn since May, that's whenever I first arrived in the district, that's improved the district and helped us move forward together. What two or three things can Dan do to improve as a professional? What two or three things are going well in our school district? And what two or three things need more attention or need to be improved in our school district? All of those responses, coach, which is really important, he calls me and gives me, you know, the theme of what was said and helps me break that down and make some sense out of it, helps me not rationalize some of it or excuse some of it away. Then I, I form a report, uh, more of a summary report and give that to my board of education. And then the first time I did this, and I've done it for several years with Bruce, the first time I did it, he said, now you're gonna take this and report back to your staff about what they said to you and what you're gonna do about it. And I'm like, what? No, I am not gonna do that. Didn't want any part of it. 
but I can tell everybody in the room, he helped me walk through that. And the, the first time, and, and even here recently, whenever I did this with staff, it's given me a great deal of uh, uh, traction, credibility, and relational capacity with staff to show that I'm willing to put myself out there, listen to them, grow as a leader. And it's some reciprocal accountability because I said, this is what I've heard from you and I'm going to do it but I need you to help hold me accountable. And this is a two way street. So it's really helped us in the, in these difficult times, maintain that relational capacity and transparency in terms of the professional and personal growth of the school district superintendent. So thank you everybody. Thank you very much, Dan. Okay. Say one thing. Yeah. Kevin. So thanks for letting us sponsor this session as all of you guys are we're just we're lifelong learners we're trying to learn from you guys that's how we build our company that's how we improve and how we get better as a company so when you all you guys came up here the one interesting thing to me was there wasn't one silver bullet that got everybody through the pandemic and as vendors i know we all like to believe that whatever product we offer is the silver bullet it's not right we know that i mean we'd be silly to think that but for 45 years that we've been in business, our job is to listen to you guys, hear what you're doing, what's working well, what's not working well, and help build our company around that so that we could just be part of the support structure for what you do. So thanks for what you're doing as a as a superintendent in the United States, and we hope to continue to support and partner with you guys as we move forward. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Spencer. Appreciate it. Well, what else needs to be said? Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you listening. Please do subscribe. Tell your friends. IEI's gathering again at the Biltmore Estate, July 14th to 16th. Uh, early arrivals on the 13th will have a hospitality. We'll do another one of these five minutes of fame. It was a really popular session. Everyone really loved it. So we'll have another one of these to share in a few months. I want to thank all of these folks. I want to thank Dwight, Ken, Todd, Shanna, Tim, Mike, Tom Burton, Dan Cox, and I especially want to thank our friends at Audio Enhancement, Kevin Mitchell, Jeff, and Spencer Anderson. We appreciate you all being part of IE. Thank you.